Hi, my name's Mark Kelly. I'm one of the leaders at City Church Leeds, and I want to thank you for downloading this podcast. I hope that it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. You join us as we're journeying through the Gospel of Mark, and we're asking the question, Who is Jesus? A simple question with many answers. For more information about us and other resources and media, please visit citychurchleads.net. So, um, we're doing this series on Mark, and um, the one that that Mark Kelly, not the gospel writer, asked me to talk about, it does get confusing, um, was perfect sacrifice. Um, And last week, again, Mark Mark Kelly talked about the fact that the gospel of Mark was really quite short, and it was like a roller coaster ride. You know, one thing would happen, then another thing would happen, and so... If the gospel writer takes the time to write something down, it must be because to him that's a really important point. And when you look at the gospel of Mark, it really is a gospel of two halves. The the second half is nearly all to do with the lead up to and the actual crucifixion and Jesus dying. It's that last week. It's, it really concentrates on it. So obviously, to, to Mark, the gospel writer, this was really important. <clears throat> and in this half, Jesus three times directly, absolutely clearly, boldly tells his disciples he is going to die and on the third day he will rise again. And they didn't get it. You know those um, films where there's two people and they've heard on the the radio broadcast that um, there's an axe murderer on the loose and they're walking and it's dark and they see a house and the door is open and it's all dark and they go, let's go into that dark house. And you think, no, don't go into the dark house when there's an axe murderer. It's all horribly inevitable and and you you know what's happening. Why can't they see it? Why don't they get what, what what is happening? Why don't they know they're in the middle of a really bad B movie? Um, and it's almost like this, that, that you're, you're listening, you, you read this in the scripture and you think, disciples, duh, why, why didn't you get this? And, and let's have a look at why maybe they didn't get it. Although there were some people who did get it, because you've got to remember that um, when Jesus was going to be crucified, the Jews came to Pilate and said, oh, by the way, you better post a guard on the tomb because there is this rumor that Jesus is going to come back to life and you know we reckon that the disciples could go in and steal his body and then pretend that he's come back to life so you better make jolly sure that that is not possible because if that happened that would be so much worse than Jesus just being alive stirring up trouble it would be really really bad news so you need to make sure about that so obviously somebody was understanding what was going on But let's have a look in Mark's gospel. It's in Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10. Let's have a look at what Jesus actually said and see if we could possibly mistake what it was he was saying to the guys. So let's start in Mark 8, and it's Mark 8, 31 to 32. And just before this, Peter has identified Jesus as the Messiah. He's had this great revelation And Jesus says, 
Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And after three days, rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. There's no mistake there, is there? And straight after um, Peter told him off for saying these things, Jesus goes on to use the image of taking up the cross as an example of the sacrifice that any of his followers should be willing to make. And then in Mark 9, 31 to 32, just before it, he's um, with his disciples alone. He's wanting to teach them. And um, he says this. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Could he have been any more clear? And straight after that, what happens? They start having an argument about who's the greatest amongst them. And then again in Mark 10, 32 to 34. They've just been having a discussion and Peter has said, well, you know, we've left everything to follow you. And they're on their way up to Jerusalem. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. That's absolutely clear. And there's more detail in that one as well. And what happens immediately afterwards? James and John come to him to ask that they should be on his right and his left when he comes into his kingdom. They're asking for positions of power. But Jesus is thinking about the right and left of him on the cross. So how did Jesus know that this, what, this was what was in store for him if his disciples just couldn't see it? Why is it that when he said this absolutely plainly, absolutely boldly, they, just, they, they couldn't accept the information? For some reason, it didn't fit in with their idea of how things were going to pan out the sort of end to what they were doing at the moment, what they were going through. It, it, it wasn't what they saw happening. And yet Jesus is absolutely clear. And in order to understand that, we have to look back at the Old Testament. We have to look back at the things that they all knew, but for some reason Jesus interpreted differently. So... <clears throat> 
the reason I say that we have to do that, we, we have to do that with, uh, you know, all the time. When you, when you think the two going on the road to Emmaus, Jesus walked alongside them and said, he, he opened the scriptures to them and he said, look, all of this is about me. And um, sometimes I've thought, gosh, it'd be really good to be in on that conversation, wouldn't it? But you'd have to have one of those TARDIS translator things because I don't speak ancient Aramaic, so perhaps with the help of a TARDIS, and perhaps I'd have to be invisible anyway because otherwise I'd be a bit smug because I know what's going to be, you know, what's going to happen in the end. <clears throat> um, so the thing is, you know, we can't, we can't be there um, no matter how much you're into sci-fi, but um, when you put that sort of mindset in, into your head and you think actually the whole of Scripture is about Jesus, all of the Old Testament is talking about Jesus, then you start noticing things. And so I'm just going to take Isaiah and look in Isaiah. We know that Jesus went into the synagogue, picked up the scroll of Isaiah and unrolled it and said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. You remember that, that um, passage in scripture. So we know that he knew where that was because he found it quite easily, even if he'd been given the whole, I don't know how many, how big the scrolls are and how much you get on one scroll, but he found the right scroll and opened it to that point and read it. So here's another bit of the scroll that was recognized as being about the Messiah. It's in Isaiah 9, um, and I was actually looking at 1 to 11. I may not read all of that. Um, <clears throat> it starts about saying where the Messiah is going to come from. Um, he will honor Galilee of nations by way of the sea beyond Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And it has that passage in it that a lot of us know. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is a Messiah who is going to reign and rule. And there was this picture that had built up of the Messiah possibly defeating the Romans and re-establishing Israel as the head, not the tail, Israel and, and the temple was where everybody was going to come to find God. And um, there was this victorious warrior, Messiah, who was going to, to rule and reign. And then um, <clears throat> we get to Isaiah 42, 1 to 4. And this is all about the servant. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering 
quick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness and justice, he will, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establish, establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is a servant. It's interesting that, uh, that God talks about his servant, and yet he's a conquering Lord. And then Jesus took this idea of being the Lord of all and the servant of all and washed the disciples' feet at the Last Supper and said, if you want to be the Lord of all, because he knew this whole thing about being the greatest and having positions of power was a real issue for his um, young young followers. And he said, you need to grasp this. If you are going to be in charge, given authority, you need to be a servant and you need to copy the things that I'm doing. Look, here I am, I'm washing your feet. That's the lowliest job you can do. It's, it's a, being in authority and being a leader is about empowering other people to be the best they can be. And this was the right way up, not the wrong way around, which they might have thought. And then we go to Isaiah. I've put down 53. Actually, it starts a bit in 52. If, if you're writing this down, if you look from 52.13 to 50, the end of 53. Let me just read some bits of this. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. But then it goes into this section, which must have been strange for those who were thinking of a, an all-conquering Lord. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations. And to me, that reminds me of... Um, when they had the sacrificial blood, they would get some hyssop and dip it in the blood and sprinkle to purify. They would sprinkle the altar and sprinkle the people. He will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. And then it talks about the Messiah growing up before God, having no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely, and, and this is a lovely passage for those of us who see the fulfillment of this in Jesus. Surely, he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. That's a lovely passage. Re read the whole of it to, to yourselves and just, just think about what it's saying to you about Jesus. Why, why did the disciples just not get this? They were looking for somebody maybe who was all-conquering, but Jesus was seeing himself as a sacrifice. So I started looking at sacrifices in the Old Testament. And I found a really interesting website 
written um, by um, a Jewish teacher for other Jews about sacrifice. And um, I was thinking about sacrifice. You know, if you, if you try and call to mind all the things that you know about sacrifice over all peoples and times, there's always been this something to do with sacrifice, something to do with uh, striking some sort of bargain with the somewhat capricious gods out there that if you slaughter an animal on a field, then um, maybe you'll get a good harvest because you've pleased the gods. So there's something about sacrifice that's out there that's a universal, universally understood thing. And when we look in the um, Old Testament, we can see right at the beginning, the first sacrifice, Cain and Abel, making this sacrifice. And I don't think the fact that God rejected one and liked the other had anything to do with the fact that he preferred lamb chops to a nice corn on the cob. It had something to do with the intention with which it was given, the careful preparation. <laughs> Did you like that one? Yeah. <laughs> the, the careful preparation behind um, the, the giving of the sacrifice, the, the, the way it was given. And then we see Noah giving a sacrifice of thanks when they actually um, get out of the ark. Um, Abraham making sacrifices that he walks between and the covenant is formed. It's a, a sacrifice that enables him to come closer to what God wants. Um, and then his almost sacrifice of Isaac where he's taking Isaac, he's prepared to put all his dreams and his hopes and everything he believes is going to come out in the future, put it on the line, and at the last minute, there is a substitution. There is a ram, and the ram is sacrificed instead of his son. And then there's the Passover sacrifice, where the lambs were slaughtered and the blood was put on the lintel of the, uh, the houses, on the doors, so that the angel of death would pass over. The lamb was slaughtered instead of the firstborn sons of Israel, whereas elsewhere all the Egyptians suffered bereavement. And then we've got Moses. And Moses brings all these um, sacrifices and things into a system. Um, there's a, a limiting, there's a limiting to the sacrifices only happen in one place, at the tent of meeting and later on in the temple. The sacrifices are done by um, authorized people. So you can't just go and sacrifice under any spreading tree. You can't do it yourself. You bring your sacrifices to the temple and then... Sometimes you end up having a picnic with the stuff that you've sacrificed, um, which is rather wonderful. I, I really like this attitude to meals and, and, and food that, that I find in, in the Jewish community. Um, <clears throat> but it's not just enough to sacrifice something. There has to be a real intention behind it. So with the sin offerings, it was, you know, if it was an intentional, malicious sin, there wasn't a sacrifice for that. The sacrifice was for sorrow and wanting to get back to God and your, your sorrow and your repentance and you had to make restitution. Um, sometimes, you, you know, you had to pay double or, or seven times or whatever it was in order to make restitution for the damage that you'd done. And so these 
um, these ideas about sacrifice run through the Old Testament and God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The really important thing was the intention behind it. And there are concepts and ideas within the sacrificial system. So there's, there's giving. If you sacrifice something, it wasn't a wild animal because that didn't belong to you in the first place. It was a domestic animal that belonged to you and you were giving something that was yours. You could bring gifts of grain or, or, or grapes or whatever, but quite often you gave gifts of flour, which meant there was a lot of preparation involved to make the flour, and it was then mixed with incense. Or you bought oil, so you'd had to take the olives and press them and make the oil and bring the oil, and it had to be perfect without spot or blemish. It was a real gift of, of your time and your effort. And then there was this whole idea of substitution, which I talked about with Abraham and Isaac. Um, quite often you, you laid your hands on the sacrifice, on, on the, the beast, and then it was slaughtered. It was almost like the beast was being punished rather than you, because you were transferring um, the, the wrongdoing, the guilt, the sin, to the animal which was then slaughtered. Or in the example of the scapegoat, the priest laid his hand on it and it was cast out into the wilds. But all of these things were always mentioned in the context of the name of God, which, which means mercy and loving kindness. It's God's mercy and loving kindness to us which allows this substitution. And again, you needed to repent. You needed to make restitution. It needed to be perfect. And some of the offerings were a burnt offering. That meant you put all of the offering onto the fire and it would be completely destroyed, completely given over to God. And that was a symbol of complete submission to his will, complete dedication to God. And then the third concept or idea was coming closer. The whole point of making these sacrifices was so that you could get closer to God because you couldn't get closer to God when there was sin barring the way. It was an uncleanness um, or sometimes there were guilt offerings that didn't have to do with sin but it was a, a ritual impurity that you had to get rid of so that you could come closer to God. This was the whole point, getting closer to God. And these sacrifices were daily, weekly, monthly, annual there are all these sacrifices but in the talmud it states that in the age of the messiah the only sacrifice that would be left would be the sacrifices of thanks and gratitude because there would be no need for the sacrifices to do with sin and impurity anymore which i really like so jesus and his followers knew all this it was part of what they learnt in shul every Saturday morning. They knew about all these teachings. And still, for some reason, they didn't get it. It was really hard. When you hear that anybody's going to die, that's a really hard piece of news to take. When you're being told that that person is going to die a particularly nasty, violent death. These were probably only teenagers or early 20s, these lads. 
That is really, really hard. When you've got this idea that this hero, because he was older and, and he knew God and he did miracles and he was amazing, and they had this idea that he was going to put everything right, and suddenly your hero turns around and tells you, actually, guys, that's not how it's going to be. It's really, really hard. And I just want to look at two different reactions to this news. And it's from Mark 14, and I'm going to read 1 to 11. And it's called Jesus Anointed at Bethany in my Bible, if you've got that. Mark 14, 1 to 11. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. So this is two days before um, everything's going to go really pear-shaped as, as, as far as the disciples are concerned. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. This was her investment in the future. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. I don't know what was going through that young man's head. Maybe he was, maybe this was the last straw and it made him really angry. We have a, a mention somewhere else that he used to keep the purse. He was like the treasurer for the disciples and he used to help himself out of it. Maybe he said, that's ridiculous. This guy's just got two up himself. He needs taking down a peg or two. Or maybe he was just so heartbroken and wanted to provoke Jesus into doing something different to prove that he was the Messiah that he wanted him to be, who was this amazing conquering hero. I don't know. But whatever it was, 
he went to the chief priests and took money so that he could betray him. But this woman, maybe it was Mary, she clearly understood. And instead of trying to make Jesus be something else, she accepted what he said about himself. She accepted that what he said was going to happen did actually need to happen. She may not have understood it all, but she trusted that he knew what he was doing. And she responded in the only way she knew how. She prepared him for burial. She poured out all her savings for her retirement or old age, if you like, and worshipped him. So here we have Jesus having the last supper with his disciples and he turns to Judas and says, you better go off and do what you said you were going to do because he knew what was going to happen. And then they walk to the Garden of Gethsemane after Jesus has broken the bread and shared the wine with them. And suddenly this Passover meal has taken on new meanings because there were all the meanings of the Passover, of the lamb being slain for them so that they wouldn't die, coming out of Egypt and coming into the promised land. And he overlays that by taking the bread and saying, this is my body and it's going to be broken for you. And this wine... This is my blood. It's going to be shed for you. I'm going to die, guys. And they get to Gethsemane and they are so tired and so worn out with the emotion of it all. But one of his close friends, one of the 12, has gone off and betrayed him. So he takes his three closest friends, those friends that were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he says, can you just pray for me? This is really hard. Please pray for me. And he goes and starts praying before his father and saying, I know this is how it has to happen, but if you can think of any other way to do this, I'd really like you to tell me because I don't want to have to go through this. I'm finding this really hard. God, please, I don't want to do this, but I will if this is the only way. He could have run away, but he didn't even though he knew what was going to happen. And he came back to his closest friends and they were sleeping because they were exhausted. He was really on his own and he went back and back to his father and said, please help me. Everything within me wants to run away from this. But I know that it's going to be good in the end. I know what you've got in store and I know what I've got in store. And then the mob turns up as if he's some dangerous criminal and drags him off to be put in front of his peers and his elders and his people reject him. And then he's brought behind that, before the highest earthly authority in that region where he is and he condemns him to death. And he could have got out of it. He could have commanded legions of angels to rescue him. But he doesn't. 
even though he knew what was going to happen. And he's taken by the soldiers and he's tortured and mocked and humiliated. He knew what crucifixions were like. He knew what was coming. But he still went through with it. And they nailed him to the cross and sunk the cross in the ground and he was spat on and mocked by all the people standing at the foot of the cross apart from his closest friends who watched, some of whom dared to come close and be with him in that awful time. And finally, as all our wrongdoing and sin is laid on him as a substitution. He's separated from his father. He in himself was perfect. He didn't know sin. He hadn't disobeyed his father. But here he is, separated from God, and he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first line of Psalm 22. And as you read through the rest of that psalm, you see how much it's all about the crucifixion. And then as an act of will, he died. He gave up his spirit, knowing that he had accomplished everything that the Father sent him to do. He fulfilled the sacrifice of a sin offering, the substitution, the careful preparation, giving what was only his to give, his own life. And by it, he brought us nearer to the Father. And we see the first glimpse when the temple curtain is rent in two. And there is no longer anything that bars our access to the Holy of Holies. Now, there are two reactions to this, maybe. We can try and make Jesus into something else. He wasn't really God. He was, he was a good man. He was a prophet. He was a great teacher. We can say he, he didn't really die. He went into a, a faint um, he didn't really come back to life. Or maybe more relevant for us is if we believe that actually he is God, that he did die, he did come back to life. Maybe we're wriggling at the moment because he's asking us to do something we really don't like the idea of it. But if all those things are true, he's Lord. Or we can accept what he has done for us, the amazing sacrifice he made, the perfect sacrifice he made, and we can come to him and say, thank you, and we can worship him. And all the good things that Jesus did in that sacrifice to bring us closer to God so that we can know that daddy love our perfect Father, unconditional love, we can accept that and worship him. 
And as we break bread now, perhaps the children could come and help us. With In this house, we are real. But we also make mistakes. And when we do, we make sure we say, I'm sorry. We give second chances to anyone. We also have lots of fun. In this house, we definitely forgive. We also do loud. And we give the best hugs. We are family. And in this house, that means we love.